0: I was just thrilled to get to come back. And this time, last year, we talked through the storyline of Scripture. And this time, I'm so excited to be able to dig into that story, looking at Philippians 2 and a little bit into Philippians 3 tomorrow. Um, but first, I want to start with a story because, well, I just figure I might as well get my most embarrassing stuff out of the way first. So here we go. A few years ago, I joined a gym. And I had some baby weight to lose because it had been, like, some years, and it was time to do that. So I joined the gym, and I was going to get fit, and I was going to get strong, and I was so motivated. And so I I started by just kind of, like, sneaking in and, and doing the things. And then I graduated to a couple of classes, and I thought, well, that's going okay. So I started step class. It was the right class at the right time, but you should know. I am not coordinated. So I hung out like in the back on the side, and they would be going this way, and I'd be going the other way, and the ladies would like give me dirty looks because they're like, you're in our way. And so I just mostly tried to stay out of everybody's way. But after a while, they would do the same choreography, time after time, and I started to pick it up. And I started to get a little cocky even because like I could do this stuff. And so... One day, I show up to step class, and something had made me late that day, and the only spot left was, like, front, almost center. But that's okay, because though I wasn't good at step class yet, they knew me, and they were nicer to me, and I could kind of do what we were supposed to do. It might not have been pretty. I wasn't very excited that I was going to have to look in the mirror at myself. But anyway, I had it under control, so I'm flying around. And then my ankle hits the side of the step and twists. And I fall into a heap in the front of spin class, the only time I'd ever been in the front. I'm in a heap. They stop the class because I have sprained my ankle so bad. I couldn't even get up and walk out the door. They brought a chair in, and I sat for the rest of spin class at the front of the class. So you guys are so kind. Instead of laughing, you're feeling sorry for me. But um, uh, two things. I am klutzy, and I should know that about myself. And second, we all have humbling experiences, right? Sitting in the chair while step class finishes is one of those humiliating experiences. We're gonna talk about humility tonight. So I feel like I can speak from experience because that class brought me down. Um, But really, humility is not the same as humiliation, is it? So we could all tell stories of times that we have been humiliated But that's not what we mean when we're talking about humility. Despite our connotations, humility does not equal embarrassment. It's not something even to avoid, like maybe humiliation is. Humility is what we're all called to do. That's what God's word tells us. And as we're going to see tonight, we have the greatest example of humility that we could all ever ask for. So our main point tonight, as we go through Philippians 2, uh, verses 1 through 11, our main point is that living worthy of the gospel requires humility, which Jesus perfectly modeled. Living worthy of the gospel requires humility, which Jesus perfectly modeled. And we're going to look at this first half of Philippians 2 in three different sections. So first, we're going to look at Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4, at the fact that we have humility displayed in these verses, humility displayed. And then verses 5 through 8, humility modeled, humility modeled. And then we'll look at the last three verses, 9 through 11, humility perfected. So first— Let's look at humility displayed. So in the first chapter of his letter to the Philippians, this is Paul writing. He's writing to the church of Philippi, and he begins by giving thanks to this church, kind of in true Paul fashion. We see a lot of the things that we would notice in a lot of his letters. So he gives thanks to this church. He loves them dearly. He prays for them. In fact, I want to just read verses 9 through 11 of chapter 1. So you can get a taste for how Paul feels about this church. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Paul's writing to this church. He 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 thanks them, he prays for them, then he reassures them because he's in prison. He's in prison for the gospel. But he says that's okay. This is part of God's plan, and it's actually not hindering the spread of the gospel at all, but Paul says it's actually furthering the spread of the gospel. It's God's good plan, even if it doesn't look like it. And then he encourages this church in Philippi to live a life worthy of the gospel, So Paul this is kind of the main idea of Paul's letter is live a life that's worthy of the manner live a life that's worthy of the gospel live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel it matters how we live so with that in mind then we go into chapter 2 and let's read verses 1 through 4 in chapter 2 so if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love we're just going to walk through this first verse and look at all these things that we have in Christ. And the first thing that we see here is encouragement. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, is there encouragement in Christ? Yes, there is. What is this encouragement? Jesus Christ, though he was fully God, came to earth and became human. He perfectly obeyed his father. He lived perfectly his whole life in all the ways that we fail to do so. But then he died a sinner's death on behalf of every sinner who will call on his name. He died in our place because we are separated from God by our sin. He died to reconcile us to God. He took the punishment for sin that we deserve. He took it on himself. But then he didn't stay dead, did he? He rose from the dead He defeated sin and death, and if we are part of God's family, if we just believe in him, call on his name, we're part of his family, we're part of his kingdom, and are set free from sin and death. This is encouraging. This is the encouragement that we have in Christ. Jesus' life His death, his resurrection serve as our guarantee that all this life, everything that we're going through right here, and if we looked in chapter one, Paul's in prison for the sake of the gospel, and he knows that the people that he's writing to are suffering too, and if he were writing to you, he would know that you are suffering too in, in various ways, and if you're not now, you know you will at some point, right? We suffer in this life, but Jesus' life, death, and resurrection serve as our guarantee that it's all going to be worth it. That following Jesus, even when it means trials or loss or shame, it's the only way of life that really makes sense. We are encouraged because of what Jesus did on our behalf, knowing that we're free from the guilt of sin. Our lives are no longer headed to destruction like they were before, but rather to salvation. We have this salvation already through Christ. But we're also heading to eternal salvation that we look forward to, right? To be saved from the curse of sin, from the weight of this world, we have great encouragement to face whatever we have to face. We see again in verse one that we have comfort. We have comfort from God's love. He loves us. God loves you, he loves me enough to send his son to humble himself in the most ultimate of ways. To be despised and rejected to the point of death, to take on the weight of sin and shame and judgment. He who was perfect, who knew none of the feelings of guilt or sin, He who was fully God, holy and just. He who had lived in perfect unity, always with his Father for all of time. This is the Jesus who did the unthinkable in giving himself for us. This is love. When life gets hard and we're not sure how we are supposed to keep going, this is our comfort. Knowing that we are deeply loved, we are seen, we are not alone. We reside under the wings of the Almighty God, and he loves us more than we can even begin to understand. In fact, he loves us enough to even endure pain and suffering sometimes knowing that it will cause us to grow to know him and love him more. No matter what we have to walk through, he loves us, and this should bring us great comfort. So we also see that we have uh, participation in the Spirit. We can stand firm and keep striving no matter what because of our participation in the Spirit. If we belong to Christ, we are not alone in what we're going through. We have the Spirit dwelling in us. This is how we know that we have Christ's presence and strength in our lives because we have the Holy Spirit as our helper. And we also see here that we have affection and sympathy. God has great affection for us along the same lines as love, right? And we have affection from one another when we're part of God's church. Whatever is going on in our lives, no matter what we feel like, the truth is that we are loved and cared for. We have sympathy, too, because Christ has experienced what it means to live in this world, to feel everything that we feel. We have a great father and a great son caring for us as his dearly beloved children at all times. So, what does all this have to do with humility? Because we said at the beginning that this was about humility. Well, that's what Paul talks about next. All of these things that we have in verse 1 bind us together. These are the things that we hold on to together as God's church. We are to be of the same mind about the fact that Jesus is our encouragement as we belong to him and live in full assurance that our salvation has been granted to us through him. We are to be of the same mind that our comfort comes from knowing that God our Father loves us with the greatest love that we can imagine. We are to be of the same mind about the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, both individually and corporately when we come together, participating in the sanctifying work of God in our lives. So what we agree on in Scripture should bind us together in a way that nothing else does. We, though we come from all different places, and though we are so very different, our identities are all the same because we all belong to Jesus. We're part of the same family, part of the same kingdom. We've found life and salvation in him. We're living for him. We're trying to live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, right? Right? And we're doing it together. This is the unity that we have that transcends all of our differences. And out of this unity of truth and identity comes love for one another. First, we know that we're all loved by God in the same way. And we also know that we all come to Him, love Him in the same way. We may express it differently. It may take different forms in our lives. But the Bible tells us how we love God, right? So we do it the same way. It's a love of response, of gratitude, of knowledge. It's so many more things, too. We should, we, have, we should all be loving God in the way that he tells us to love him according to his word. And so this is our commonality as we come together, despite all of our differences. And so it's through this deep commonality that we all have that we can love each other. We love each other as we live and we move and we act in accordance with Scripture together, striving together for the faith of the gospel, seeking to live worthy of Christ. God put us together to live together, to walk together, to love one another as He loves us, because we are not supposed to be trying to do this on our own. In order to do all of this, we have to be really humble don't we? We have to count others more significant than ourselves. My husband back there is really good at this. He is so quick to give up like the best bite of the cake or whatever to his kids. He would happily give up that last piece of dessert for me, whereas I'm, on the other hand, I'm trying to figure out how I can like set it aside so nobody sees it so I can have it later. (laughs) Not my husband. That's like a really silly example, but it is true. Like That's counting others more significant than yourselves. We can do it in little ways like that. We can also do it in big ways. How do we count others more significant than ourselves? in my church, and I think this is probably true in your church too, one really practical way that we do that for each other is by singing a variety of songs in a variety of ways. So we have a really diverse congregation in age and preferences. So on any given Sunday, we're going to sing songs that I'm like, yes, I love this one. I feel so like, like I'm worshiping so great right now. And then there's others where I'm like, could we take that out of the rotation? Because, whoo, you know. But when I start to feel like that, I try to remind myself that that person over there loves that song, and the one that I really just connected with, they could take that one out of the rotation. That's a way that we can practically love each other, though, right? Is just by, by putting aside our own preferences, recognizing that other people have other preferences. So we have this opportunity to just think about how we can love and serve one another, There's all kinds of ways that we can do that, big ways, little ways, to consider other people above ourselves. And we should look for ways that we can do this. Sometimes they're little and simple, other times they're going to be quite costly, right? But they are all ways that we walk in unity and we follow the example of Jesus. This is one of the ways that we can walk wisely, that we can live in a manner worthy of the gospel thinking rightly about myself, that I am one piece of the bigger puzzle, the puzzle that all works together, that's part of God's work in the world and the church. I'm a part of that. We can do this. We can consider others more significant than ourselves, consider other people's preferences, even though it goes against our nature sometimes. We can do this because we have the greatest model of how to do it. And that's found in Jesus. So let's look at our second point, verses 5 through 8, where we see humility modeled. We can work ourselves crazy trying to figure out humility, right? Because Christians don't have the market on humility. The world knows how to be humble. The world talks about this. So how do we know what true humility looks like? Well, we know because Jesus is, gave us the perfect picture of it. So, uh, verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Jesus was and is fully God. He's perfectly eternal. He was with God the Father before he was ever born as a man here on this earth. Having the form of God always, he has always had all of the characteristics and the qualities of God, which means he also has all the rights of God, part of being fully God, right? Form, character, rights— Just take this in for a moment. Jesus had never known sin or guilt or shame. Like, we know that, right? But can you imagine not ever knowing what it would feel like to feel shame? Not only that, but he had never known limitations, all the limitations that we walk around with every day. Our human bodies show their limitations all the time, more and more as we get older, right? Like when we search for a word and it's like right on the tip of your tongue that it's not going to come. Or um, when we run and grow weary. For some of us, that might be 20 miles or maybe 20 seconds. But we have physical limits, right? Um, we have the need for sleep or hunger. We have fear. Or, or you sleep on your arm and you wake up with the pins and needles. All those limitations that our bodies show all the time, our minds show all the time, we're so used to them, but imagine having never felt any of them, and then submitting yourself to all those. So not only did Jesus submit himself to, you know, coming on earth, but he took all these limitations on himself. I would never do that if I didn't have to, but that's not the mind of Christ, and we're so thankful that it wasn't. So what was his mind? Well, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. So does that mean, is this saying that he wasn't equal to God if he didn't consider it something to be grasped? Well, no, we can't even entertain that thought because the Bible tells us exactly the opposite, that Jesus is God. What this is saying is that Jesus didn't consider his equality to God something to hang on to at all costs, to keep him from doing whatever the Father asked him to do. He was willing to subject himself to humanity and all the limitations that came with it. He was a humble servant to his Father. He is our example. We are to take on this same kind of humility And I was reminded of just how easy it can be to strive for equality with God. And I think we don't often label it as such or think of it as such. But here's just an an example from my children that kind of put it into perspective for me that sometimes I think we're striving for equality with God even though we would never call it that. So my son, my oldest son, (coughs) was trying to help his sister do what she was asked to do. That never goes well, right? Uh, let mom be mom, and you be the brother. But he, was, he had really good intentions. And so, but it ended up getting out of control, and he did something really not nice. And so I didn't have the whole background. And I said, why did you do that? And he said, well, mom, I don't know why, but when she didn't listen and do what I told her to do, it made me so mad. <laughs> yes, I understand. So I pointed out to him that he was angry because he wanted to be God to her. He wanted her to do whatever he said, to listen to her, to bow to her, to listen to her, or to, yeah. Um, He wanted her to bend her will to his, to honor what he was saying, because he had good intentions. He wanted her to respect him, and also he wanted to shine and excel in this situation, and be the one, the good brother who got his sister to do. But then it spun really fast out of control, because his motives weren't right, right? So I could really quickly call that what it was, and then I thought, oh man, I do that too, all the time. I want people to listen to me. I want people to bend their will to mine. I want to shine, you know? Wow, I want equality with God, too. So we do this. And yet, Scripture tells us that it's quite the opposite. That our will should always bend to God's. And that we should never consider equality God, with God something to be grasped, right? We don't seek our own glory, our own will. We seek God's. Because this is not how Jesus was or is. His heart, his mind, his will always look to the good of others. Always look to the will of his Father. He always submits himself to God's will and seeks his glory and seeks the good of his children. What a beautiful thing. That is why he emptied himself and took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, here again is a phrase that we can easily misunderstand or misconstrue because what does it mean that he emptied himself? Did he empty himself of his God qualities? Well, Jesus was fully God when he was born as a human. He never became anything less than God. He did give up being in the form of God. As we said before, he gave up his perfect, limitless body to take on a human body. And here's a quote that I think really well um, sums it up. So I'm going to just read this quote for you. Jesus was still God while he was here upon the earth. However, he took upon himself an additional nature, that of human. Jesus had a body like other men, except it was without sin. He didn't set aside any of the attributes that were rightly his. However, he voluntarily limited himself to being a human being. With genuine humanity came certain restrictions. He could only be at one place at a time. He needed to eat, rest, and sleep. He could feel pain, bleed, and die. Before he became a man, he had no such restrictions. So he emptied himself and became a man. How does this serve as a model for us then? We haven't given up this perfect limitless form, right? This is all we've ever known. We aren't God. We're not taking on the form of humanity. And yet it provides a tremendous example for us. Because we should readily take on limits for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ for the good of those around us. So uh, it means that I clean my house before small group, right? So that nobody has to enter into the chaos that the Libert family produces on a given day. So I clean my house, and then I invite this horde of people in and all these little kids, and they leave, and there's more crumbs than when we started sometimes. So then I clean my house again. But I take on that limit for the good of our small group. And way harder than that... I take on the limits of not grumbling and complaining when I have to clean my house again. That's the one that gets me. Doing it with a humble and, weir- and willing spirit. Or maybe it means saying no to a girls' night out because it's been a really busy week for my family and they need me at home. Maybe it means for somebody not taking that really great promotion because it would mean that you're working when your church is meeting. Or uh, maybe it means not working so many hours that you can't pour into the lives of people in your church. Or dropping your plans for the day to sit with somebody who just got some bad news. It could mean uh, not needing to prove that you're right or smart or whatever. Giving sacrificially of your finances, as the Lord calls you to giving up comfort for the sake of another person. The list could go on, right? But there's just so many ways that they're not things that we're required to do, but they're just limits that we could put on ourselves as the Holy Spirit leads us to do so. We listen to that prompting and we say, I will give of myself for the good of someone else. Are we willing to put limits on ourselves for the sake of others. Are we ready to follow Jesus' example of emptying himself to serve us? There's countless opportunities to do this. They don't look the same for all of us, but if we have the mind of Christ, we will be looking for them. We'll be willing to count that cost. Because Jesus didn't stop there, did he? As if it weren't enough for him to empty himself and take on human form to serve his children, he carried that humility all the way to the point of death on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He died the death of a guilty sinner. And in the process, he who was without sin felt the full weight of guilt and shame and punishment for my sins and for yours. God's wrath was turned against the one person who did not deserve it. Jesus experienced all of this so that we don't have to if we will just call on his name. This is the kind of servant that we are to be for, for one another in the church. That is humbling. That is humbling. Most of us are not going to die for one another, right? That is not our gen, or, or, or the general um, thing that we're called to do. And yet, that doesn't let us off the hook. While we may not be required to physically, literally die for one another, we are called to die to ourselves, This is the seriousness of the tasks that we're given. This is the mindset that we are supposed to have. The spiritual growth of each and every one of you is to be more important to me than my own interests. This is really countercultural, really unnatural. It's kind of uncomfortable, isn't it? But it's unnatural because our sin nature tells us that we need to look out for number one because nobody else is going to be looking out for me. But this is not the truth because the Bible tells me that if the church is functioning the way that it's supposed to, I don't need to look out for me because you guys are going to look out for me and I'll look out for you. And that seems like a better plan. We don't do this perfectly. Only Jesus did it perfectly, but that shouldn't stop us from trying, should it? It's risky. It has to start somewhere. Jesus died on the cross for the very people who put him to death, for those who would run away from him, abandon him, deny him. But he knew that if he set the example and provided the way, they would start to get it. And they did. They started to die for one another. He did it first, and we have this beautiful model of mutual care that's supposed to happen in the body of Christ. It has to start somewhere. We are responsible for emptying ourselves, for dying to our own wants, our own interests, in the interest of one another. On this side of eternity, it won't always work out perfectly, but there's, this is one of the ways that we live in a, in a manner worthy of the gospel. And, even better... We have a future to look forward to where this will be done perfectly for eternity. This is what heaven will be like for us. We'll be so perfectly cared for by one another, and we will so perfectly care for one another, all while knowing, experiencing, and trusting Jesus' perfect love and care for us. One day, we will no longer feel that pull of sin telling us that we need to put ourselves first and trust no one. But for now, we're here. So we struggle, but we persevere in, no, in following Jesus' example because we know that he is worthy. And that's the last section that we're going to look at tonight. Verses 9 through 11, where we see humility perfected. We don't strive for humility out of obligation or duty primarily, right? We, we definitely don't serve others out of guilt or begrudgingly. That's not what Jesus is asking of us. We don't do it because Jesus is like a really good teacher. He's really cool. He's those things for sure. But we do it because Jesus is worthy. We do it out of worship and love. So let's read verses 9 through 11. Therefore, because Jesus Humbled himself to the point of death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God's currency makes no sense to our earthly minds, right? That Jesus would be exalted for being humble that he would be honored and worshiped for dying a sinner's death. It's just like the opposite of what we would expect. We actually are surrounded by quite the opposite mentality in our our world, aren't we? It's those who seek to be exalted, they have to promote themselves now, because we live in a world with social media. So if you want to be somebody, you make yourself somebody. There are people who make millions of dollars for posting a cute selfie on Instagram, right? We are surrounded by lies all day long. Our world tells us that we should seek to be great, that we should seek to be beautiful and worthy and liked or worshipped, that we need to promote ourselves That we should buy into everyone else's self-promoting, and that should matter to us. Now, the point here, I'm not, I know I'm kind of bashing on social media, and the point is not that social media is evil. The point is, who are you worshiping? That celebrity who has that large staff to make sure that you never see her look anything less than perfect? Maybe that's not even your thing, right? Maybe you're more drawn towards that Christian woman on Instagram that loves Jesus very much, and probably has like such good intentions, that as you follow her life, you want to be her. You want the things that she has. Or maybe you just wonder why you can't be her, why you don't have it together quite as much as she does. You'd like her platform, or you'd like her kids, or her Bible study group, or her amazing ability to make things cute all the time. My life is not very cute, so I'm drawn to people who have things cute all the time. We are so tempted to worship others all the time. It's so in our face, just with all of the information that we have coming at us all the time. But who is worthy of our worship? There's only one. We are also tempted to worship ourselves all the time. We, we think highly of ourselves. We pat ourselves on the back for being right about something or for being cute or smart, or getting the things done that we had to do in a day, whatever it might be. But you guys, we also worship ourselves when we self-pity. I don't know that we always think of it that way. It's a different kind of worship, but it's still putting all the value on me. I'm not worthy of worship in either way. And neither is you neither are you. Only God is. Jesus is fully God in spite of becoming a man and dying a sinner's death in our place. In fact, his death only proved his deity. It proved his worthiness. God has highly exalted him. God has given him the name that is above every other name. We are to bow to him, to surrender ourselves to his lordship, his kingship. We are to confess his goodness, greatness, his overwhelming love. That he would die for us, to save us. That he would free us from sin and death. That he would free us from our bondage to sin, to live freely in his kingdom, loving and serving him as we love and serve one another. This is why we seek to live in humility, looking to the interests of others, dying to ourselves, in service to our brothers and sisters in Christ, out of worship and reverence to Jesus. We do it out of love, because he loved us first. We do it to bring honor to Jesus, as he brings honor to God the Father, and as God has told us to bow our knee to him and confess his name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that um, you turn our whole lives upside down that you turn our understanding of everything upside down. I mean, Lord, we trust that your plan for our lives as Christians is a good one, that as we look to the interests of others, we can rest assured that we are taken care of, that we are safe in your hands. Lord, I just pray that you would not let us leave here without thinking about the ways that, that we can look to the interests of others the ways that we can follow Jesus' example, and also, Lord, the ways that we can worship Jesus for all that he has done for us. Thank you for these women, and I just pray that your word would speak boldly to us this weekend. In Jesus' name, amen.